He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who has been called the, quote, de facto chief tax enforcement officer of the United States. His most recent books, Perfectly Legal and Free Lunch, were New York Times bestsellers. And they're part of what really is kind of like a, a, a trilogy. And the book we'll be talking about tonight is The Fine Print. He was a reporter for the New York Times for 13 years and also teaches now at Syracuse University of, University of Law and the Whitman School of Management. He was recently elected board president of Investigative Reporters and Editors, Inc., and he lives mostly in Rochester, New York. David, it's so great you could join us again. And well, thank you, Jay. It's really wonderful to have you here. Um, the name of the book, again, is The Fine Print, How Big Companies Use Plain English to Rob You Blind. And, David, I really enjoyed reading it, but one of the things that really struck me is it's not so much about fine print as much as it's about um, the gradual... Um, Diminishment of the United States regulatory system. Uh, yes, but of course, all the regulations appear in the fine print. But uh, as opposed to contracts, yes, the fine print I read about is much more in the rules of government uh, than it is in uh, in contracts that you have. Although there are some sections about that. Well, yeah, like in your cable TV contract or in your telecom. Or the, the woman, the the bus driver, the Wells Fargo trying to take her house after. She was sold this crappy car for three times its value. Right. You, but you talk about, for instance, to start with, um, you, 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 let's, we can start with, I don't know what to start with, because, you know, there's telecom, there's railroads, there's, can we start with the railroads, actually? Because that's really sure. interesting. Because, sure. uh, but one of the things that struck me, by the way, as I was reading it, is that this is an enormous amount of work you did. Thank you. Yes, now, I did. You know, one four-page section represents, as far as I can tell, a year's worth of reporting. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, I, I read through literally tens of thousands of pages of, of documents. If, if anybody's suffering from insomnia, I have uh, documents I can recommend. I don't put those in the book, but to find the material I had, that's what I had to do. No, it was an extraordinary amount of work that's, that's buried in this, and I was I was just blown away as I was reading through it. I just I, I I would finish like literally four pages and say, "Wow, that was six months." Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of work. So I, I, will, I will tell you, Jay, the very first radio show that I did that was call in about this book. The very first caller was a guy named George, and he said. Um, well, you know, books like this, everything there is it's in the Google. You just go to Google and it's all there. And I cut him off and said, I'm sorry to be rude, but no, you, if you find anything in my book in Google, it's only under my byline because I wrote a piece somewhere before it appeared in the book. Well, that's what I was hoping is that you were actually publishing some of this stuff in advance of having it in the book because, as I say, it's really, really deeply researched. And uh, I was I, – I, I read the other two books, but this one really – for some reason, it struck me just how much work there was involved in everything that was in it. So let's talk about the railroads, because I think that's a really good illustration, because railroads have been around for a while. Yeah. It, it's not like telecom, which has not been around for so long. Right. So we're, we had railroads, and they were monopolies. They were government-created monopolies, right? Absolutely. And we had regulation for a while, and then regulation started going away. So can you just walk through that? Well, um, the first price regulation in America was the railroads in the 1800s because the railroad companies were really deeply gouging people's pockets. In fact, uh, um, uh, Henry George in his book, uh, Wealth and Prosperity or Wealth and Progress, said that you know ta small towns were approached by the railroads as an armed bandit approaches his victim. And... Uh, Congress then passed this law to stop some of the abuses of the railroads, which in many ways were simply Wall Street abusing farmers and the Midwestern and Southern uh, merchants. 
Can you take a moment to talk about how important railroads were to farmers? Oh, couldn't get crops to market without them. You didn't have to have a canal or railroad. Uh, where I live in Rochester, New York, was an absolute backwater until they built the Erie Canal, and then it became the original boom town in the 1820s. Uh, this was the first boom town. And so wheat farmers here could get their product to New York or, or London, for that matter, because they could ship it by water. Well, once railroads came along, just after the canals, you could move products. Otherwise, you can't move grain by horse-drawn cart all the way across the country. It's not the, it doesn't, doesn't work economically. So they were absolutely crucial to the development of these towns, and the railroads would charge outrageously high prices. Um, they, they were working in conjunction with the bankers. Um, of course, the bankers financed the railroads, and... Uh, creating tremendous economic harm. And out in California, the uh, the railroad system was uh, called by Frank Norris in his novel The Octopus because it was just like this gigantic economic octopus sucking the life out of uh, out of California. You also noted the subtitle of Henry George's book, the one you just cited, as an inquiry into the cause of industrial depression and of increase of want with increase of wealth. Yes. Yes. So we, we were creating a system even back then that made a few people very wealthy and a lot of people uh, put them in terrible shape. And, and that was preserving a monopoly, a government-sponsored monopoly on rail traffic. Absolutely. And, and the railroads, remember, they were given all of this land. They then sold it uh, off to people um, at, at prices that they were in control of. They basically would tell you where you could live and where you could do business. So in modern times, what happened is that, uh, in 1980, just before Reagan came into office, Congress passed something called the Staggers Act. And the idea was we're going to bring more competition to the railroads. We need competition. Well, at the time, there were 36 competitive, what are called Class One railroads, big railroads in the United States. Today, there are seven, and I point out that in reality, there's only only four who matter, and they operate as duopolies, two in the West and two in the East. So we're right back to where we were, if not worse off, than where we were back in the 1800s. In fact, railroad ownership today is more highly concentrated than in the 1800s. The difference is that today, the people who serve on the federal agency that succeeded the ICC, it's called the Surface Transportation Board, after they have done all they can to help the railroads, they leave when their terms are up, and they get jobs like senior vice president at one of the railroads or general counsel of one of the railroads. Or secretary, or secretary of Treasury. Or, or, yes, or secretary of the Treasury. I'm sorry, we're referring to John Snow. who was. I wrote a lot about in an earlier book. Railroads are really crucial to the economy. None of us go around thinking about railroads, pipelines, electric utilities, gas pipelines. But those are the underlying businesses that really determine how the economy is doing. Right, and we'll talk about that a little bit more infrastructure. And infrastructure is a lot of what you write about, at least in, in the first half of the book. But I just want to note that the, that the, the amount of freight moved per worker drew, grew sixfold, you say. Yes, yeah. which is a good thing. You want to be more efficient. You want to be more productive, at least, if not more, more efficient. Productive. That's right. But... It turns out that the wages didn't go up. So what you're talking about, because one of the, I mean, one of the things people are really aware of is monopoly might drive up prices, and you talk about that a lot. But the other thing that happens is that monopsony, which is an economist term for uh, limited limited markets for suppliers, especially for labor, is what this did is created a monopsonist environment for workers in the rail industry. And so you saw an enormous reduction in workers. And, and thank no. downward pressure on their wages and certainly no sharing in the tremendous increase in productivity. That's exactly. Big things I probably, because I didn't want to be too technical, should have gone into more in the book, but we've seen these enormous gains in productivity in America, and yet none of those gains are going to workers. They are all going to, to capital. Capital holders, right. Right. And, and so... So they, they reduced staffing in railroads. They increased productivity six times per worker, and wages didn't go up. Right. And, and in the course of all of this, you try to get rid of the unions who uh, have the ability and the knowledge to bargain on a fair basis against you. One, one of the, Jay, one of the strange things about America is we, we've had this attack on unions, and we've kept them way back. 
as if an 18-year-old newly minted high school kid from some little town with a mill who, when he finishes high school, goes down to apply for a job, or a 23-year-old um, kindergarten teacher who has a college degree and one year of teaching uh, experience, you know, uh, uh, practicum, is supposed to be able to negotiate with some multi-million or multi-billion dollar organization that has lawyers and human relations specialists and knows all about the market and have fair and get their properly paid their wages. That's nonsense. The the young person doesn't know anything. That's why you need to have unions. So there's some balance between the big company or the big government or the big nonprofit and the worker. Well, it's funny because a couple of times you refer to Adam Smith's um, Wealth of Nations. Yeah. And, you know, one of the core messages of that book was that you need to have well-placed regulation to prevent monopoly and monopsony. Correct. Um, yeah. The, I call that the first document of liberalism, actually, the first liberal book. And in it, you know, people think about it as, you know, kind of a capitalist document, but it was also a document of the only way the invisible hand can work is if it's clearly worked out that the government keeps people from forming, keeps capitalists from forming monopolies and monopsonies. And well... Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. That's what he, he argues all the way through. It, it just runs over and over again. And, and when you were reading the book, what you were talking about, you know, in industry after industry, is the gradual demolishment of the regulatory apparatus that makes it possible for people to be able to, as consumers, participate fully in the competitive economy, and as workers participate fully in a competitive economy. That we're, it's not competitive. What it is is dictated by. Um, oligarchs, for lack of a better word. No, that's, that's exactly correct. Uh, Jay, the, the important element is this. I'm a big fan of competitive markets. Uh, now, we look back at the period right before Smith and ended just probably was there with what was called mercantilism. Right. Every piece of gold you have is a piece of gold I don't have, and there's a fixed amount of wealth in the world. And we go, that's silly, because we now know how to create wealth. And maybe someday uh, Captain Picard's world will exist where you say, gee, Earl Grey hot, and the machine even knows what kind of China cup to manufacture, and there's no need for money, and, and all of the rules we live by go away. But as of now, the best device we've come up with is competitive markets. Well, Smith taught that there's nothing businessmen hate more than the competitive market. They want to defeat it. They want to out away from the rigors of competitive markets. And who are among the leading champions of thwarting the market? which is what produces the efficiency and the effectiveness and, and the invisible hand promoting economic growth. Oh, the Wall Street Journal, Barron's Investors Business Daily, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, I have a friend who's an economist who I was grousing to one day. Somebody had called me a socialist. And I was so like, you know, what, what is wrong with people? And he said, those of us who actually believe in competitive markets and know what they are and defend them, will always be denounced as socialists by people who think they believe in competitive markets but are themselves the corporate socialists. Well, one of the things that I keep saying over and over again is that markets require intense regulations. But well, they require intense and clear rules. I don't know if that's a regulation, but if you have a real clear set of rules. And well, for instance, you know, my, my orange juice, my half gallon of orange juice has now got 59 ounces in it. It used to have 64. And if there weren't a law that said they had to print that on the label, they wouldn't. That's what I mean by rules. I absolutely agree with you. And they would dilute it with orange. They dilute it with water. I mean, remember, for a number of years, one of the baby food companies, I'm pretty sure it was Beechnut, was selling sugar water labeled as fruit juice for babies. I mean, really? Really? I mean, that, that's just disgusting. It isn't, it isn't killing people in a way, but it's, it's really tacky. But, but when you heard Milton Friedman, for instance, say in the 60s that, you know, it's short of fraud and force, um, fraud is an important part of doing business. Yep. And, and actually, you talk about it when you talk about the phone bills. And you tell some great phone bill stories. Can, so you can give us one of them. Yeah. Um, uh, you want to do Adam, want me to do Adam Leipzig? I mean, the guy I start the book with? That's fine. Well, there's a Hollywood movie executive who, whose name you've never seen on the screen named Adam Leipzig. And Adam is the guy who greenlighted um, Dead Poets Society, Good Morning Vietnam, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids series, and later in another 
a company he worked at, March of the Penguins. And he is known, to everybody who's known him, and I've known Adam for over 30 years, as a guy who husbands his own money carefully and is very respectful of other people's money that he's in charge of. Um, he's, a, he's a movie mogul. He, lives, he doesn't live in Beverly Hills. He lives in the Fairfax district of Los Angeles. So one day he decides it's time to go out and own, start his own company uh, making movies. And to do that, he needs some strategic alliances. You know, when you go to the movies and you notice they're suddenly holding a Coke can or they seem to be shoving a Labatt's beer can in your face, that's all these marketing alliances with these companies, product placement. And he goes to AT&T, and they off tell him to give him everything he asked for. And they make it clear they have plenty of money. They're delighted to do business with him. But what he remembers about the meeting, when I talked to him a decade later, is not that. It's that they said to him, within, within 10 years, we're going to have every one of our customers paying us at least $100 a month. And at the time, he was paying $35 a month for his phone bill. And, of course, since 1974, everybody's been told, we're going to have lower and lower telephone prices because of competition. Aunt Bell's monopoly will go away. You'll have more and better phone service and will cost less and less and less. And yet, in fact, telephone, local telephone prices have been rising at more than twice the rate of inflation now for more than 20 years. Um, and how did they do that? Well, first of all, they got rid of regulation of the prices they charged. They told the, in California, they told the California Public Utilities Commission that the stupidest thing they could possibly do if they lifted price caps would be to raise prices. Of course, the minute the caps were, were, were eliminated, they raised prices because no one asked the obvious question. If you're not going to raise prices, why do you care if there's a price cap? Uh, then they started creating these very complicated phone bills. Another guy I write about named Bruce Kushnick was a uh, industry consultant, and his job was to extol the wonders of the phone companies. And he commissioned a survey of 1,000 Americans to see if they understood their telephone bill. The Federal Communications Commission has something called the Truth in Billing Rules, and those rules say an average person must be able to understand the phone bill. Well, uh, 47 pages? Huh? Yeah, 47 pages. 1,000 people that he had questioned, three of them understood their phone bill. So 99.7% did not. If you round, that means 100% of Americans do not understand their phone bills. Well, and for good reason, because, of course, there are lines in your phone bill that look like they're government charges rather than phone company charges. And the most classic one is there's something on every phone bill that has, says FCC line charge, FCC subscriber charge, some variation of that. There's about ten variations of that language. I thought when I looked at it before I started working in the book, oh, I have to pay this $6.50 a month to the Federal Communications Commission. I guess that's how they fund it. Well, it turns out that, no, that fee has nothing to do with the government. The government doesn't collect it. It goes to the phone companies. It's the charge you pay to be able to access the long-distance telephone calling network. But the FCC approves the charge. So even though this is totally misleading, the Federal Communications Commission, despite its rule that phone bills must be plain and clear and understandable, it allows this. And it's an example of how the regulatory in the regulatory agencies help these companies commit fraud, people off. I mean, technically it's not fraud, but in the moral sense, it's fraud. Right. Well, I assumed these were government charges, and they were breaking them out to tell me that they're government charges. You know, like on the airplane, like when I buy an airplane ticket, that they break these things out because they're supposedly charges, but in fact they're not. That's right. Well, at least in the case of the federal airline ticket tax, that actually is money that goes to the federal government. Uh, although the government hasn't been spending that money because it makes it, the budget look a little bit better. <laughs> um, but for the phone company, the, these charges are just made to make the bill so complicated that, they, that you'll feel comfortable with the fact that you're paying more for what should be really cheap service. I mean, you know, I, I know that you're, right. you're on VoIP right now. Right. These days, and I'm, we're, we're doing this over Skype, and so we're, we're at least intelligent consumers. But at the same time... Um, People just flat out get lied to by yeah. their phone companies. Well, here's something else. If, if you are an AT&T customer and you have a traditional copper wire telephone, and there are telephones in America with copper wiring that was installed in the 19th century that still works just fine. We have, one, some, we have one in my house, in, in my father's house in Maine, actually. There's well, still a, a rotary uh, Western Electric black phone stuck on the wall. still works. Well, if you call a phone company... AT&T and say, my phone isn't working, 
they will, instead of connecting you to the repair people, they immediately connect you to the new VoIP-type phone system, and they tell you, oh, well, listen, we can come out and wire you up today for that. But if you say, well, no, I like my reliable phone system, and after all, if there's Hurricane Sandy or a snowstorm, it works, whereas your new system immediately stops as soon as the electricity does, they'll tell you, well, you know, we'll try to get a crew out there. We're not sure just when because they got the regulators in all the states, or almost all of them, the past rules that they no longer have what are called uh, reliability requirements. They don't have to come out within 24 or 72 hours to fix your phone. They can say to you, oh, well, let's see, today um, I think we can get you an appointment next June. Of course, if you'd like to sign up for our other much more costly service over here, we can do that tomorrow, but if you want to go to that phone until June, that's okay. Well, but that's also a broader thing because, you know, the requirement to deliver phone service used to be a law. That's and right. They've gotten rid of that. It used to be the case that no matter where you lived in the country, you needed to, that you were required. In return for their having monopoly control, monopoly pricing, one of the things they had to do was deliver service. Since 1913, everybody in America has had a legal right to a telephone. You have to pay for it, but if you say, here's my address, you have an address, that was the key element. You live in the middle of the of the forest, they don't have to run a line out to you. But if you have a street address, they have to serve you. And the problem that, that uh, what's changed is that the uh, in five states now, um, Alabama, Florida, North Carolina, Texas, and Wisconsin, they got the law rewritten, and they're getting it rewritten bit by bit everywhere else, to take away that right. So you can end up in the following situation. You live in a big city with a lot of dense population. You're in an apartment building with 200 apartments. Running down your street is Verizon's Fios uh, fiber optic cable and Time Warner's coax cable that uh, a lot of people use. And uh, the company can say to you, well, I'm sorry, I know you'd like to have service in your apartment, but only 60 people of the 200 in your building want service, so we're just not going to wire it. And now all you can have is cell phone service. And, of course, that doesn't work in hilly areas. It doesn't work in some urban areas. And you won't have Internet access except... Well, and you have to buy a cell phone. Yeah, well, but your cell phone, even the very best fancy cell phones, they're not the equivalent of having wireline service. Right, no, that's right. So, and, that's, and, and the idea is that's no longer required, even though part of the deal was in return for having monopoly pricing power. Because that was what it was when Ma Bell was being regulated, was that... Everybody got service, and yes, that meant that Mobile got to make money on people who, in, in a non-competitive environment. That's right. And so the breakup was supposed to create a competitive environment, but in point of fact, it hasn't. No, it, 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 in fact, if you think about it, when they broke it up in 1984, AT&T was the long-distance company, and there were the seven baby bills. Well, the seven baby bells began devouring each other, uh, sort of business. Not, not devouring, they absorbing. In uh, I, I was going to say, or you, or you could think of it as a form of incest. Uh, <laughs> that's closer. Because as Adam Smith said, whenever they have an opportunity to get together in price six, they will. That's right. And so pretty soon you ended up in a situation where you were down to about four of the bells, and only two of them really mattered. Um, and, and then Michael Powell. Colin Powell's son, head of the FCC, by, by fiat, just by the stroke of his pen, basically destroyed the model for the long-distance carriers, AT&T, which had kept the long-distance business, and MCI. And so suddenly Verizon acquired MCI. AT&T was acquired by uh, Southern Bell, FCC, which renamed itself AT&T, and you had a duopoly. You had... Uh, basically AT&T in the west and Verizon in the east, and then the area nobody wants to serve, the Great Plains and the, the Colorado Rockies where not very right. many people. But there's a lot of wire to pull in order to serve only a few people. Is, is a West Quest, and now it's a company called CenturyLink. And these companies were not competitive. Uh, Verizon and, and AT&T or any of the baby bells, they didn't serve each other's areas. They had all their local phone lines, business and residential, in a geographic monopoly. And this is just a, a – it was a stupid way to break this up, and the phone companies have, um, have exploited this to the nth degree and the raised prices and provide lousy service. Well, but this has also moved into the 21st century in that, you know, we have cable television and we have other Internet providers 
And those, too, have been turned into monopolies. I mean, you, you talk about one long, cent, one long phrase for Time Warner, AT&T, Verizon. All of these they work it out so that their markets aren't competitive. That's exactly right. They, it, 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 said, the, the number one thing businesses want to do is avoid the rigors of the competitive market. Right. And you, t you, you talk about um, the United States as being 29th in the world. In, in the secret Internet. And I want to talk about that because that's a common question. Um, because early in South Korea is a highly regulated, you know, it's like Japan. It's a highly regulated marketplace. But South Korea is, is number one in terms of Internet speed. Uh, correct. Overall, it's number one and much, much cheaper than ours. Uh, and when, you, when I was there last summer, it's a marvel what you can do and how quickly you can do things on their Internet compared to ours. You mean at a coffee shop? Oh, anywhere, in the, on the subway, walking down the street with your cell phone. It's, it's, uh, it's stunning. And, but you, 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 at, at one point earlier, you remarked on how strictly regulated it is, uh, how strictly regulated the Japanese and the, and the Korean marketplaces are. And, but my recollection is... But basically what their governments do, Jay, is they set up rules that say, we are allowing you to run this business and we're doing it so the whole economy will prosper. Here in America, what we've said is, oh, the economy in America doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how much that company's uh, shareholders can make. Hold on. So what you're saying really is that the Koreans regard, in, regard the telecommunications infrastructure as, well, sorry, infrastructure as a baseline thing that the whole economy operates on, just as Eisenhower recognized that the highway system was a baseline thing that the United States needs to operate under. And to do it, is my understanding, is that they encourage innovation. That is, if you're going to if you're going to make a change in your industrial delivery in South Korea in in the internet, you need to provide evidence that it's going to make things faster. That they're not going to. Uh, no, no, I mean, you've got that basically right. That's that's exactly right. You you have to prove to the government that you will do something better and it will be superior. Uh, and they, they, you know, they only have a handful of companies. They aren't overrun with companies, but they do make sure they actually compete. Um, they make things better because yeah. the regulatory. I mean, because you can do this in different ways. I mean, competition is the way that most things get better. I mean. I don't want to have a federal government telling me what pizza places have to have in their pizza delivery. If I get 15 pizza places within, you know, w w literally within a 10-minute walk of where I live, and I don't need I don't need the government to regulate pizza places aside from making sure that they're, you know, giving us actual food. Um, but, um, but for 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 telecommunications, it's very different. Oh. Well, because of these huge fixed costs, you want to open a pizza shop and buy gruity. Well, all you need to be concerned is it clean. There's you know rat shit in your pizza. Uh, the, the only concern that that's different than the concern about telecommunications. Telecommunications is vital to everybody's uh, ability to conduct business. It's vital to commerce. It's vital to public safety, as we should have seen with Hurricane Sandy, where. The only telephones that worked after a few hours were the old traditional copper line wires that AT&T and Verizon are working very quickly to completely shut down before anybody realizes that. Right, because there's power riding in those lines. We actually have a caller. Susie Madrex calling in. Let me see if I can get her on the line. Susie, are you with us? Yeah, yeah, hi. Um, you know, I'm David, this is Susie Madrex. Hi, Susie. Hi, David. Oh, long, long time fan of your work. Long time oh, fan. Um, the thing that I wanted to point out, you know, and you're talking about ways to solve this, but you know, of course, that the political problem is, is the overriding one. And one of the things I've been trying to push in progressive circles lately, which, of course, people who see the progressive movement as identical with the Democratic Party um, don't see the, the, the point of it, is that what we really need in order to have a truly progressive legislature is we need a consumer movement. Yes, so this absolutely. Is, this is, we, yeah. we had a consumer movement. We had one. Right. Uh, Ralph Nader got, got it going right. and revived. It started actually back with Consumers Union in the 20s. 
and Ralph Nader revived it, and that's when corporate America woke up and went, oh, my goodness, how do we stop this? And if anybody listening has not read the Powell memo, just uh, go to Google or Bing or one of the search engines and put in uh, Powell memo, and it'll turn right up. It is a stunningly brilliant document on how to defeat the consumer movement. Well, this is what I keep telling progressives is, is the rational place to put our energies. You know, the, and, and to just pick two issues and give it our full, our undivided attention, which is cell phones and the monopoly in the cable industry. Right. Uh, I think that's, that's, a, that's a perfect idea. Little, little thing about this, um, I've talked to many of the people who were the leading consumer reporters in the 70s, and we had a fair amount of that in the 80s. And all of them tell roughly the same story. At some point, an editor says to them, well, you know, the, the, uh, the electric utility or the this or that company is calling up, and, and they're saying you're biased against them. And they go, what do you mean? And they say, well, because, uh, you know, you're covering consumer news. And the response of a couple of the ones who were sharper was, oh, so is the banking reporter biased in favor of the banks and the car reporter biased in favor of the car companies? But business has this idea that, you know, if you're looking out for your interests instead of theirs, that, oh, bad thing, we need to stop that and stop it. Well, David, that's something you've written about as well, is that in the finance reporting, and this was really telling during the um, the mortgage crisis, the foreclosure crisis, is that it's written from the perspective of the banks and of shareholders, not from the perspective of participants in the marketplace, consumers, and regular people. Yeah, I've never understood this about, you know, newspapers were at one time mass media. Now they're somewhat elite, but they're still huge masses of people. So when I went to the Philadelphia Inquirer in 1988 to write about the casino industry, because I figured it was going to expand all across the country. Indeed. And, and it did, exactly the way I predicted in a book I wrote 20 years ago that it would. Um, Through the Philadelphia area, too. It keeps growing just there. There's, there's now more gambling taxes in, uh, raised in, uh, in Pennsylvania than in New Jersey. And so the first month that the numbers on how much the casinos had won from their players came out that I was there, that was a basic story I knew I'd have to write every month. I simply filed my story saying, um, Atlantic City, gamblers in this seaside resort lost record amounts of money last month. Uh, gamblers lost the most at the Trump Plaza, followed by uh, closely by Caesars, uh, each with about you know X million dollars of losses. And my theory was there are 12 casinos owned by a handful of people and 32 million people who go to Atlantic City every year. The audience is the people who are losing money. It's not the casinos. Let's write about it from their point of view. How'd your editor say that? I had no trouble with that whatsoever, and the month after I left to go to the New York Times, they went right back to reporting. The casinos had a record win last month, and it was... <laughs> You know, newspaper editors, you know, they think in their hands and they go, we don't understand. We're doing this incredibly great journalism and people are stopping reading the paper. And I say to them, you know, well, you know, what makes you think that ordinary people care about a lot of the things you're writing about the way you're writing about them? When an airline announces that it's taking over another airline, we'll see passing mention of the fact that this probably means higher seat prices and lower, and lower numbers of airplane flights. Uh, instead, it's, well, this company will be able to increase its profits and be more efficient. Uh, but I'm sorry, that's for investors. The people who want to read the paper overall, they're not going to be the investors. They're the people who fly an airplane. 700 million people a year get in America in an airplane. I mean, most of them are, you know, people like me flying again and again and again. But uh, compared to the number of people who have stock in airlines, Come on, the interest here is with people who got to buy airline tickets. Right. But Andrew Ross Sorkin's much more concerned with what the what what's happening to the bankers who have the money rather than what's happening to the people who have the mortgages. He's extraordinarily sympathetic to their concern, without a question. Well the reporting comes from the I don't Andrew Ross Sorkin is a young man who's a, a business reporter at the New York Times, he used to actually sit two chairs for me and he um he created this thing called Deal Book. And when there's bad news that Wall Street wants to leak out in a way that's comfortable, and it goes to Deal Book. 
Well, the thing that got me most is when when a, an unnamed senior executive, CEO of some bank, sent him off to tell him what was going on with OWS. That's what that, that got me. Yes, he was asked by some bank executive, I suspect Jamie Dimon, but I don't really know that, to check out uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement to tell him whether it was really serious or not. And he went. And he, and he wrote that, and his editor approved that that he got an assignment from one of his, quote, sources, close quote. I mean, the idea that the business reporter serves the business community rather than the readership is really pandemic. And it's not, it's not, it's not universal. For example, for example, um, writes really good stuff and does represent the, uh, does represent the reader. But, yep, and, and I, and you know, when I was at the New York Times, I didn't have trouble doing that, but there are people who do that. There's a, one of the things, Jay, that will tell you a lot about journalists is the, the uh, tobacco papers. When the big tobacco settlements were made a few years ago, the tobacco industry had to disgorge everything. And so I like I went and looked myself up, and I'm perfectly happy with what's there, but one of the most astonishing things in them is Malcolm Gladwell, who is described as a friend of the industry. I'm no fan of Malcolm Gladwell in point of fact, but we won't go into that. But if you want to check out a journalist, just if they're in the tobacco papers, you know, pay attention to how they're characterized. That's a good idea. You know, I also didn't want to not talk about Joe Siebert. Oh, yes, Joe Siebert. Um, Joe Siebert was a federal bureaucrat as a young man and uh, one day working for the General Services Administration. Those are the people who rent office space and run, you know, all the boring logistics stuff for the federal government. He found out in this building he was working in that they had two elect two electric power meters for the same set of electricity. That is, they were being charged twice. And so he um, uh, decided to go into business for himself, auditing companies. And he's worked in all 50 states. He has a bunch of people work for him, and. Everywhere he's gone, he has found companies that are overcharging government and business. The homeowners don't do this. They're not big enough to afford him. Uh, well, he does this on spec. He does, he does audits on spec. He does not find anything wrong. He doesn't get paid. And then he only gets paid what you recover from the past overcharges. He gets a half of that. There are a lot of other people in this business, and they instead charge you, you know, like half your savings for the next five years. And Joe thinks you should recover the overcharges. So the very first company that David, David, you also—I thought you also weren't entirely clear about this in the book. Um, he only charges a fraction of what you've already been cheated for. That's right. His, his he, he doesn't charge going forward. That's right. He does not charge going forward, and he only gets a—it's a, a big fraction. I mean, it can be as much as half of how much you were cheated out of in the past. But he does it on spec. I mean, he'll go through, do the audit, and exactly. if he doesn't find anything, he won't—he won't call you up. He only calls you up when you've been cheated. That's right. The very first company that he caught was Entergy, the big New Orleans electric utility that operates in Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, and Arkansas. And for 30 years, he's been catching them all over the place, cheating people. So Cheating municipalities. Cheating, well, he, he's had state governments, the, he's had colleges and universities, the Coast right, Guard. Right. You, you, you get colleges as well. For sure, being cheated. And repeatedly he's caught them cheating the city of New Orleans, their hometown. And for big money, I mean serious money, in one case with penalties and stuff, $25 million, which in a city of a half million people, uh, geez, we're going to 50 bucks for every resident of the city. Right. And so... Uh, and, and what he did, he, he would notice that they were charging for light bulbs that weren't plugged in, for light fixtures, for street lights that weren't operational, for... Sometimes it didn't even exist. Right. Right, and, and uh, uh, meters that overran and stuff like that. But most of the businesses finding street lights that don't exist or the light bulbs are burned out or they say it's a big, huge wattage light bulb and it's actually they put a little tiny one in there. And, and so energy got tired of this. And one day there was a, a man working and selling fruit who'd done it for years in front of Charity Hospital in New Orleans, and a storm came along and there was a corroded light stand, and it fell and hit him on the head and left him paralyzed. The guy, of course, sued uh, Energy because their crappy corroded light um, stand fell over on his head. The company then sued Joe 
And they said, well, since you're the city's auditor, you should have told us. It was your legal duty to tell us that this light pole of ours was corroded. A judge threw it out except for a technicality. He let the company file an appeal as to whether it should have been thrown out. Then the company got a judge, the judge to issue a ruling that he could not communicate with the company in any way except when he in very close connection with his showing the machine. And Joe got ticked off at him one day, so he prepared like a 400-page report showing that they'd been cheating for almost 100 years, I guess more than 100 years, went through all these old hoary records to show it, and sent it off to the chairman of the company. And like on page 191 of this 400-page screed that nobody read, he forgot to take out a one-sentence reference to the lawsuit involving the paralyzed fruit vendor. So the company asked the judge to put him in prison for 45 days, a jail for 45 days as punishment for doing this. And I went out to cover this hearing, and lo and behold, I watched the lawyer for the utility walk in and out of the judge's chambers like it's his own office. Yeah, you remarked on that. That really struck me. That I mean, because you know, approaching the bench, you know, is supposed to be a big formality. It's not like you're supposed to be hanging out with a judge. Judge's chambers and drunk Scott, so we were both too, you know, not sufficiently sober to drive and and talked about stuff. But one side shouldn't be doing that. If you're right. to, but so it's going. And the judge is really hectoring this guy. I mean, he's doing it's just unbelievable how bad a time he's giving him. And just as the judge is about to, to pronounce that he's uh, what he's going to do, probably the 45 days in jail the company wants, he suddenly looks out in the courtroom and notices that there is a single person in the spectator section. <laughs> uh, excuse me, <laughs> points. And I stand up and said, I'm David K. Johnson. I'm a staff reporter for the New York Times. <laughs> did you say New York Times? Did you, did you lower your voice and say it with appropriate sentimentalness? I was staff report. And boy, did everything suddenly change. He ended up proposing for 30 days instead of 7, and he said that provided Joe would write some sequious letter of apology, and he wouldn't let Joe edit it. Uh, and meanwhile, the lawyer tells me the New York Times had no business being there and shouldn't be writing about it. And then the next day we have to go back to court where they, the, the, uh, the judge is now being asked to put him in jail anyway because the company doesn't like the letter that he wrote. And the lawyer says to me, stop this guy. And I looked at him and I said, really, you're kidding me? I mean, it's obvious how you stop him. It's really easy. You can put Joe out of business tomorrow. You can completely destroy his business. <laughs> Bill, honestly. Stop cheating your customers. If you're not cheating your customers, his whole business goes away. Exactly. On cheating customers, you're going to keep cheating them. They tried to put this guy in jail for 45 days. For revealing that he was cheating. That policy, by the way, they say that we are the leaders of integrity. Entergy, see, not integrity, integrity. Awesome. There's a letter in the company brochure every worker gets by the head of the company saying that you must not retaliate against anybody who makes a plausible claim of wrongdoing. Well, this guy's done better than plausible. He's been paid by proving wrongdoing, and his company is trying to jail him, which tells you that, you know, like a lot of company uh, ethics policies, it's just nonsense. Well, it's cover-up. It's it's a way of saying we're committed to ethical policies when we're not. But you, you've actually opened up a tangent, and since I'm virtually speaking, we live for tangents. Um, what's going to happen when, you know, the Picayune, the Picayune Daily, Daily, the Speaker Capital Journal, the local newspapers don't have anybody in the room for this stuff? Because that's what's happening. We're getting – one of the things that's happening to the media, to newspapers, is we're losing both local newspapers and we're losing local coverage. We're – when I'm, I, I read local papers, so whenever I buy the local paper, and it's all turning into the Manchester Union, I'm sorry, the New Hampshire Union leader, of just wire stories and no, no work being done by local reporters. Uh, what are we going to do about that? Well, first, I've got to say a little joke, which is the New Orleans Times Picayune is now referred to by people since it's three days a week as the New, New Orleans Sometimes. <laughs> Uh, I was actually in Syracuse, New York today, where was another paper owned by the same company, Newhouse, that owns the New Orleans paper. And I was asked about this, and I said, you know, 
the, the these local papers like this, they're dying. A call, telling the community we're going to go from seven-daily publication to three days a week is basically, you know, when you're old, the day you, the day you decide you have to pick up the phone and call your grown children and say, you know, Dad's not going to be with you much longer. Uh, it may be five years, it may be ten, but they're dying. And the result of this is this is like the most wonderful thing in the world for crooked uh, politicians. In Bell, California, a little blue-collar suburb of Los Angeles, the city council had voted the city manager $800,000 a year in pay, the city councilman, I think, about a quarter million, the police chief, over a half a million dollars. And what was astonishing about it was they did it right out in the open. They had council meetings, and it was all discussed in the open because no reporter had been there for years. There are cities in this country of 100,000 people who rarely, if ever, see a reporter at their meetings. And without this kind of local coverage, what you're going to see is more and more corruption and dishonesty. And I'm not suggesting newspapers were perfect about this, but they were the only check that you had. Right. And I remember Russell Baker's autobiography when he talks about, you know, working, working you know, really difficult beats at the, in Baltimore. And if they're not going to have these, and one of the things that we hoped would happen is that bloggers would take care of this, that we'd have local people committed doing it for free, but that hasn't happened. We now have nobody sitting in city council meetings. We now have nobody sitting at um, county commissioner meetings. And stuff's just going to happen. Jay, there, there, I mean, it's not quite that black and white. There are some places where there are people, often retired journalists, who do this. The problem is there's no institutional memory, and that person dies, and that's the end of it and uh, they don't have any clout. You know, when I was in the 60s, when I started out in California, and every county board of supervisors had at least one, and many had five or ten reporters who covered the urban ones. Their meetings, I could write a story about some kind of, of misconduct, and it usually was involving maybe tens of thousands of dollars, and guarantee you that there would be a response and there would be action. Today, you have somebody who's a citizen blogger, and they find out some deal where, you know, millions of dollars of your money is being diverted to somebody, and nothing happens. Right. Here, there's no check. There's no control. And, of course, part of the idea of the Constitution in the First Amendment was the press would be a check on abuses of power. And right now, the press has been so diminished that it's not a check on abuses of power. And that's happening, you know, not merely locally. No. It's not black and white, but the trend line is simply awful for democracy. It's awful for integrity. It's awful for good government. Now, one of the things you do in the book is you talk about solutions, which, you know, is a good thing to do because so many people, you know, cry and moan, but they don't offer solutions. For utilities, for example, you have a series of actions that could be taken. Can you run through those? Well, sure. One of the most basic ones of all is if a utility company wants a rate increase, for every dollar that they spend on it, they should have to provide uh, their customers, uh, residential, commercial, you know, businesses, and industrial customers with an equal amount of money. Now, they still won't be a level playing field because the company knows the inside stuff better than they do, but right now it's, you know, 99 cents to one. And by the way, you, the customer, ultimately pay the 99 cents. Well, that's one thing we should do. Another thing we should do is stop this growing practice that gives companies what are called index rate increases, where you cannot challenge the rates. Uh, pipeline companies now, one of them makes a 55% annual profit. The average profit in America is less than 7%. For big corporations, it's less than 10. 55% annual profit, and they've just been given 38% rate increase over the next five years through what's called, you know, price adjustment, an index, a cost of living index. And the commission says, you can't challenge that. That is not a rate case. Uh, okay, now you need to back up a little bit because most people may not be aware that um, utilities and other um, monopolies inside states are regulated by a utilities commission, a public utilities commission, although you use a different phrase for PUC. Well, PUC is Public Utilities Commission, the PSC, Public Service Commission, in New Jersey, we call it the Board of Public Utilities. And the federal agency that does this for electricity and water and other things is FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. But in all three, in all those cases, we're recognizing that this is a monopoly and there's no market. There's no market to determine prices. So it has to be done by some kind of oversight agency. 
Right. There is no competition, and these agencies and their staffs are supposed to act as a proxy for the market to make sure that there's a doctrine. Just and reasonable. Prices the customers pay should be just and reasonable, and the profits the owners make should be just and reasonable. How can a 55% annual profit be just and reasonable? That's absurd. But the federal energy rates so deeply in the pocket of the regulated companies that the pipeline companies have these incredible deals. And another one they have is this that I, I recommend we stop. The pipeline companies are all partners under the law as master limited partnerships. Partnerships do not pay the corporate income tax. They are exempt from the corporate income tax. And these particular kinds of partnerships have been exempt now for 26 years. But they get to collect the corporate income tax in their monopoly rate that the government forces customers to pay. Well, think about that. I mean, think about your own life. How nice it would be if you didn't have to pay income taxes. No income taxes came out of your check, and somebody else paid them for you. You'd have all this extra money. You'd be really well off. <laughs> but you write about grossing it up, too. Right. What if you're... About taxes being treated by regulatory commissions as part of the cost of doing business and adding that to the rate. Oh, but hold on. Let me finish this one, Jay. I'm sorry. Think about this. How nice it would be if somebody paid your taxes, but what if you're the one that has to pay somebody else's taxes? You've paid your taxes, now you've got to pay Joe, Joe Rich Guy's taxes over here who owns a, a pipeline. And you're a lot worse off because of this. And it's not in one way a lot of money. The pipeline industry collects, I estimate, three cents per day from everybody in America. Nobody's going to go to war with three cents a day. But you know how much three cents a day from everybody in America is at the end of the year? $3.3 billion. And the way taxes work in utilities, you earn a $100 profit and the taxes state and local are 40%. Well, you would say, oh, well, okay, so we have to give them $1.40 to earn a dollar's profit after the 40 cents of tax. No. You have to, that 40 cents you give them is profit. So you got to gross it up. You have to give them 40% of the 40 cents. That's another 16 cents. And then you got to give them 40% of the 16 cents. That's another uh, 4 cents. And pretty soon we're talking about giving these guys over 60 cents on the dollar. You give them a dollar and 60 some cents so they can get get a dollar after taxes. And if they don't pay the taxes instead of a dollar's profit, they get to keep a dollar and 60 cents. Hope that's ever give you a 60% raise. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's all rubber stamped by, by public utility commissions. Whose commissioners, in many, many cases these days, especially the ones at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, use the uh, and go to work for the utilities. Yeah, that's right. And, and in fact, that's what we're seeing at the federal level as well: is that you know the banksters work for the government when they're not working for the banksters. Right. You know, I want to close by by talking about you know I, I started off by mentioning Adam Smith talks about the importance of regulatory and accessible for there to be free markets. And without regulatory environments, you can't have free markets. And the example I'd like to use is, is bazaars. You know, the very basic kind of marketplace you have is a guy selling rice or a guy selling wheat. And he, thro- he throws it into a hopper and, and puts another piece of weight against that to, to judge either the size, either the volume, or the, or the weight of what he's selling. And invariably, those bazaars have somebody regulating them. This is officially... The, this is officially a liter measure. This is officially a kilogram weight. And without that, people, bazaars couldn't exist. Right. That kind of very basic regulatory um, environment is necessary for somebody to be able to, for, for markets to actually work. Because otherwise, what would happen is, you know, I have drivers who have their own meters, and the meters would be inaccurate. Um, or gas stations would sell less than a gallon of gas. Because, you know, if you go to a gas station, you see a big stamp on the, on the gas on the gas dispensing device that says this has been certified as actually one gallon is one gallon. That regulatory presence is absolutely essential to having a free market because you can't compete if somebody's selling you more gas and somebody else is selling you less, right? Absolutely. Exactly correct. Deregulation is just a disingenuous name for new regulation, too often under rules that favor corporations over their customers. That flies in the face of everything that Adam Smith talked about in The Wealth of Nations, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and if Adam Smith came back today, you know, it's like if Jesus came back today. They would look around at what's being done in their name and say, what? 
exact opposite of what I was trying to get you to understand. It freaks me out when people say, when I say, oh, by the way, the first liberal was Adam Smith, and they say, what are you talking about? And I said, no, that's the first liberal. That's the person who stated the liberal doctrine, that capitalism and free markets are essential to human freedom. And yeah. that to have free markets, you need to have intense regulation. That's right. Well, you need, I, don't, I don't think he would argue for intense regulation. What he would say is you have to have very clear rules and you have to enforce those rules. And we're not, we A, we have, deregulation has been code, the dog whistle, for let's throw out the consumer protections, let's put in place rules that thwart the, the invisible hand of the market that Smith wrote about that prevent competition, and Wall Street has actually institutionalized this. Um, you can reverse engineer my book to figure out you know, where to bank investments that will probably do pretty well. They build what they call moats. You get government to put in all these regulations in place so nobody can start a business and compete against you. So the competitors you do have who are weaker are made weaker and weaker by these rules. And this moat, it's maybe good for you because you get to collect all of these excess profits, what economists call rent, that is undeserved income. Well, rents is, is, is exploiting a scarcity in, in a commodity and in, gen, in general. But, in, but if we create a monopoly scarcity, then rents is extracting um, an artificially created scarcity. Yes, and uh, yes, you're being more technical about it, but we're, we're in agreement about that. And, and in the long run, though, this is devastating to the economy. It, it, a company makes a lot of money, and what we have are what are called deadweight losses. So this company makes all this extra money because they have this regulatory moat. This is not capitalism. This is what I call corporate socialism. We are rewriting the rules so that these businesses don't have to compete. That means they get flabby. They're not innovative. Uh, they they uh, uh, tell. Well, well, to be even even simpler, I mean, you know, in the standard economics 101 illustration of, of monopoly is that Prices are over. Prices are too high, and delivery is too low. That is, that is the product delivered is less than would be delivered at a free market price. And that's exactly what you describe when you talk about telecommunications. <laughs> when, when you talk about the fact that if you live in under in areas that it's hard to service, then you just don't get service. It's priced above what you can afford, and they and even if you wanted it, they wouldn't deliver it. Because that's what happens when you have monopoly pricing, is you have a lower amount of goods supplied at unless, a higher price. Unless you have a government rule that says, as every other modern country says, telecommunications is so important we have to have universal service. So you who live in a city where there are 10,000 telephones within a square mile are going to pay 25 cents a month extra so that Charlie Farmer in the middle of Nebraska and your Aunt Martha, who lives uh, alone in East Texas, 20 miles from town on the old farm, can reach you or can reach the fire department or the police department when they need to. Right. And that's what LBJ did, actually. I mean, he, he rural electrification, communication yeah. systems, the recognition that rural people need, it's part of the, the deal, is that everybody should be connected. Right. right. And so if you can get rid of these telecommunication systems in the modern world and other systems like electricity and water and natural gas, you can also depress land prices and then a large private company can go in and, and scoop up land and do things it wants to do with it uh, without having to worry about you. So your solutions um, mostly represent the recognition that infrastructure is something that we need to make universal. Yes. And infrastructure needs to be broadly defined. If you're going to have, and, and this is the, the, the kicker about this, is that if you're going to have strong economic growth, you know, growing economies like Norway or like Sweden, um, you're going to have to have really solid infrastructure. That's right. And one more thing, Jay. I have a piece that will be out momentarily in Newsweek. It's about infrastructure. It's the second one I've done for them. And in it, I suggest that infrastructure may, may, I've said the word may, just turn out to be the single most important thing deciding who is the next occupant of the White House in four years. 
and by infrastructure, we mean broadly speaking, healthcare is infrastructure. Yeah. The idea that you can start a business and not have to worry about whether or not your kids can go to the doctor is yeah. infrastructure. I'm talking about um, uh, what we think of as the physical infrastructure, roads, highways, bridges, electric service, telecommunications, water. What happened to that, that smart grid we were supposed to get? What happened to what? The smart, smart grid. I mean, I, you know, that was one of the reasons I really supported Obama is that he recognized that, you know, we lose an enormous amount of power you know, over, quote, high-tension wires. And a grid that didn't suck would be a good thing. Well, it would be, although I have to tell you that I think there's very good reason, and I've done this for a long time, that instead of building these massive, huge interstate grids where a tree limb in Ohio can turn off power to 50 million people, it's happened in 2003, we should be thinking about going back to the system we used to have where each utility was pretty much a discrete grid with some minor interconnections in case they needed to add or get rid of power. Mm-hmm. We should be thinking very heavily about changing our culture so that we – why aren't all new houses built with solar? Why it does not every house in Arizona have a solar panel on its roof? They're all over Germany. If the Germans, who are as cloudy as Rochester, New York, can do it, why aren't we doing it here? And the reason we're doing it is we haven't developed a culture that says instead of a, a cedar roof or a shake roof or, or whatever – we're going to have this kind of roof. That's just a cultural thing. We just tell people and persuade them that's the thing to do. Just mark my words, Hurricane Sandy may actually change the politics. It changed the language of the New York Times. It did. Uh, for, for a couple of days, anyway, because there was no, oh, but maybe, maybe the client skepticists are, wrong, are right. It just was flat out, we need to do something about it the next time this happens. That's right. And, and there's some stuff in this piece of Newsweek that will be out momentarily that I write about that really is not, you will not read anything like it somewhere. And I make, and I may be wrong. In four years, when you call back and you're either going to say, boy, are you a genius or that is dumbest well, thing you ever. Well, well, David, the thing is, it's absolutely a no-brainer that we, we've got free money. I mean, the interest rates that are being charged for, for dollar borrowing is, you know, close to zero. It's in real terms, 10-year bond, it's like a percent and a half in nominal terms. In real terms, it's zero. And every single nickel of that can be turned into physical capital that has an ROI in the area of 6 to 8%. It's absolutely a no-brainer. That's right. And by the way, right now, because of a law Ronald Reagan signed, American corporations are holding $3.5 trillion of untaxed profits offshore. Technically, it's offshore. It's there. And they can't invest anywhere because people's wages have been held down. They have no way to make a profit off it. If we had a big infrastructure program, people would be earning money, they'd be spending money, and corporations would put that money to use instead of, in effect, stuffing it in the mattress. So I've got to ask you, and we'll close with this. What the fuck? I mean, it's incredibly bad public policy to not be converting this, this low-priced financial capital that the United States has access to into fiscal capital. I mean, right. you know, we have bridges falling apart. Right. We Money have is not capital, as Adam Smith thought. It's just a measure, a unit. It's not capital itself. Right. So why? I, I understand that they're trying to make life difficult for the president, but it's still absolutely crazy public policy that we're not turning this opportunity of cheap financial capital into fiscal capital. What, why is that? We have the lowest interest rates in recorded history. We have records 700 years old. They've never even been close to this low. And uh, the reason that's not happening, I think, is that, first of all, uh, we have now everybody under the age of 50 has been raised with Milton Friedman's nutty ideas. Uh, the behavioral going are wrong. We have business leaders who have been re- repeatedly taught this idea by these ideological groups that anything that's government or tax is bad, and we and racism. I mean, let's not beat around the bush about it. Um, we have a, a country where the election of a biracial president has really unleashed all the latent racism that used to be expressed. One of the ways it was expressed was the liberal media, uh, because it wasn't polite or acceptable to say, I don't like black people or brown people. We're now seeing it very openly. This is what Mitt Romney just said. He graciously conceded the election, and now he's going around saying, well, black and brown people, they were bought off, because, of course, we all know that they just out there, they're moochers. They're the 47%. Well, it's on, it's awesome that he's decided to go public with that after denying that he said it. Well, 
think today that what I always thought was the old moderate myth has been replaced by this alien who took over his body for the election. Actually, I think maybe it's the moderate myth was the alien, yeah. But your solutions are policy solutions, and, and they're good solutions. But the political solutions are harder. I mean, we a president who's talking seriously about cutting our basic social insurance programs. Yes, that's correct. And so here's what people can do about that. Uh, you need to be writing brief, concise letters or emails to your member of Congress about things. Not long screeds. You're not going to look at them. Subject line, you know. When a congressman shows up in a district, get five or six people together, position yourselves around the room, have a strategy for some questions you want to have, and really hit them with a question. When they try to slink off, somebody else get up and practice it with your friends. You can sort of mouth mouth them. Call up your TV stations and complain when their news is about junk like uh, a fire of no consequence instead of serious news. Call up advertisers and say, you know, um, why am I uh, watching your ads on this TV station? I'm not going to buy your a car from you guys because uh, uh, we're getting crappy news here. Or call up advertisers. That's a great idea. You know, form consumers. Pick a particular issue that you are interested in and get other people involved. And maybe even organize a campaign to get people to recognize that. Reform begins at the bottom. And then there's a whole host of other solutions which are laid out in the book. So, Jay, this has been wonderful. Uh, thank you for having me on. David, it's wonderful you could join us. 